Greetings and salutations, dear viewer, and welcome to another episode of Indiscretions, the podcast for the politics of discretion. As always, I am your host, Catherine Emily, and today I want to wrestle with the question of what does the public-private distinction look like in modern America? Does it even really exist? And let's start off by just dealing with some basic definitions. When we talk about public, public good, public action, terms like that, what exactly do we mean? And conversely, when we talk about private affairs, what exactly do we mean? Now, imagine, if you will, a interaction between you and your neighbor. There's a tree that borders your lawn and your neighbor's lawn. Now it is planted on your side of the property line, but the branches overhang your neighbor's property. And your neighbor comes to you one day and says, I don't like what this tree is doing to my yard. It's causing all this shade. It's preventing the grass from growing. Uh, the trees are old. They're, they haven't been properly taken care of. It's dumping twigs and branches and stuff all over my yard. Now, you don't have any responsibility to do anything because your neighbor is dealing with his own private property, something that he has complete control over. That's what makes it private. It is entirely within his domain. Every action he takes on it is something that is born of his own endeavor. So it is entirely under his control. Nobody else has any right to it. And the same is true of your property. Everything that stands on your property, you are entirely able to dispose of and order as you see fit. Now, what makes any interaction you have with your neighbor over the trees that border your yards private is the fact that whatever action you take is down to both of you agreeing to a specific end. Let's say you disagree with your neighbor. You like the trees the way that they are and you're not going to do anything about it. Perfectly fine, perfectly within your purview. At the same time, it is within your neighbor's purview to deal with the branches that overhang his property. If he wants to trim the tree, whatever. Conversely, you might also agree that, yes, the trees are an issue. Maybe you're best friends with your neighbor and you decide that the trees, having the trees remain standing, is not worth the injury and the grievance that it is doing to your friends. So you decide, because you value your relationship with this person, to come together and to pool your money and to have someone come and trim or remove the trees. Or perhaps for your own purposes, you also agree to trim or remove the trees because you've decided you no longer want them on your property. They're an eyesore, they cause you a lot of work, you've decided you want to do something else with the property. And both of these scenarios, your private wills have aligned and you have determined to pool your resources and do something for your mutual self-interest. Now, this is still a private interaction because both of you have decided of your own volition that it is in your interest to take action. You're not involving a third entity. Well, you are. You're involving presumably some sort of landscape architect or some sort of contractor who is going to come and to 
to take care of your trees for you. But you are contracting that service. You are paying him. Again, the contractor is offering a private service. He or she is agreeing to come and to do work on your yard in exchange for fair compensation. So in all of these interactions, the agreement you make with your neighbor to take care of the trees, the actual contract you sign with the landscaper to come and remove the trees, it is all a matter of you and the parties involved agreeing on ends and agreeing on ends that are achieved through terms that are of some mutual value. So if you pay the contractor to come and take the trees down, he gets received a fair wage and compensation for his time, and that money is a utility. It's something he can use to build his business, to feed his family, whatever end he decides to put that to. You get the benefit of having the tree from your property. Perhaps you also have the, the benefit of knowing that you've helped your neighbor, who is a friend, and your neighbor has a similar benefit to you. He no longer has the trees on his yard, and everyone gets what you want. And that is a private interaction because individual motivations have spurred this action. Everyone has decided to participate because there is something of value in them, and that's what drives them to participate. In each case, too, the action that is taken is entirely within the control of the individual involved. You have the right to dispose of your property as you see fit. Your neighbor has the right to dispose of his property as he sees fit. And the contractor has come and performed his labor and utilized his skills as he sees fit and has decided to do so because he's received some sort of fair compensation. That's what makes this a private and not a public interaction. Because a public interaction involves multiple people, but it involves multiple people in a different way than do private interactions which rely on multiple parties agreeing to a single end. Now let's talk about what the term public means. Privacy we have defined in reference to individuals and to the lens of individual ability and whether or not an individual has the sole and exclusive right to control things, whether it's under his domain. Private property is something that the individual exclusively has the right over, whether it's because he's purchased a piece of property or whether it's because he's created something through his labor. Now, when we talk about the public and public concerns and the public welfare, we are talking about groups. So we're shifting the lens of focus here. We're not talking, we are still talking about individuals because a group is merely an expression of a number of individuals and the individuals within a group don't lose their rights. But we're talking here about things that are a little more nebulous. We're talking about things in common where there's a demarcation between lines of individual autonomy where we're not entirely clear if things fall under the domain of one individual or another. We're talking here about things that cannot be organized by individuals in private interaction. So you might be able to have a meeting with your uh, the neighbors on your street and to agree that you want to set up a neighborhood watch or something like that. Something where you have all agreed 
individually to see some of your autonomy. So you're going to allow your neighbor to patrol your property. You still have the right to control that property. So you decide that your neighbor is allowed on your property for the purpose of this communal watch. But at the same time, if another of your neighbors decides to show up and wander around your property, you have the right to revoke access to it, to say that this is my property and I have not given you permission to be here, so please leave. But there comes a point where it's simply impossible to make these sorts of compacts because when you start to deal with communities, when you start to deal with towns and cities and states, you're dealing with people who are simply too numerous and you're dealing with an ordering of affairs that cannot be handled by individuals agreeing to enter into what are essentially service contracts with other individuals and so when we talk of the public and the private distinction we're really talking about things that are entirely within the individual's controls being a matter or a function of the private realm. And we're talking of things that cannot be accomplished solely through the efforts of individuals being a part of the public realm. And in a letter that Thomas Paine wrote to the great Thomas Jefferson in 1788, he separates these in terms of natural rights, which are the exercise of those rights supported only by their own naturally natural individual power. So these are natural rights. And then he talks of civic rights. And these are things that cannot be secured by the individual. These rights are ones that individuals could individually exercise fully and perfectly and those they could not. So civil rights, we have something that is entirely within the individual's power. Or I'm sorry, natural rights are entirely within the individual's power. And then civic rights are something that you're still talking about individuals retaining their sovereignty, retaining their rights to their property, but we're talking about, when we talk about civic rights, things that the individual could not accomplish on their own. So for instance, uh, we're talking about things like, uh, like roads in towns, and the idea that you pay property taxes in your town so that the town can then organize the, the building of roads, the paving of roads, the upkeep of roads, they make sure that roads are, roads are plowed in snowstorms, things like that. And that might be something that you and your neighbors could conceivably do. You might all get together and be able to build a road on your street, maybe. But that's a lot of um, it's a lot of effort. It's a lot of work. And the presumption here, of course, is that you just don't have time because you're busy going about your life, and you also want to spend time directing your endeavors towards your own private affairs. You want to expend your effort on things that matter to you, that make you happy, versus worrying about things like keeping up roads and, and, and engaging in certain levels of civic government. So when we talk about public affairs, and we talk about civic rights versus natural rights, we're talking about things to which you are entitled by virtue of the fact that you are a contributing member of the group. So the fact that you pay taxes to your town makes it so that you are entitled to certain services, be that, um, be that, um, 
trash collection, be that any number of, of civic functions that localities perform. But these are not rights in the sense that natural rights are, in the sense that you can go out onto your property and do pretty much whatever you want because it's your property. Now, of course, that's caveated by you on private property. Obviously, you don't just have the right to murder somebody because then you're infringing on someone else's right. But within the bounds of you're not infringing on anyone else's right, you have freedom to order your property as you see fit, to dispose of it as you see fit, because it's entirely within your control. And the things that you do, the things that you create, originate from your effort, originate from your being. If you don't take specific action, they would not exist. And that simple fact gives you the right to dispose of them as you see fit. So now we understand the basic distinction between public and private. Private is something that it comes from the realm of natural rights. It's something that involves purely the expenditure of individual effort, some task that an individual can accomplish without help from anyone else. And a civic right, which is when we start to talk about public, which is where we start to talk about about the involvement of government is something where you haven't ceded your natural rights. You as an individual are still sovereign and still have the right to dispose of your property as you see fit. But now we're talking about group efforts. We're talking about the ability to order things on a grander scale. We're talking about the invention of the general will, the idea that there is a common good that can be achieved by having some civic body organize and, and provide services that by your contribution, you receive a right to. But this is not a natural right because you on your own could not achieve the same result. And that's the basic distinction between public and private. So the question is, where is this distinction evident in modern America? Where in our governance do we see the clearly demarcated lines between public and private? Let's pretend I work for a major corporation. Let's pretend that I work in one of Amazon's shipping warehouse, and my job is generally to organize packages around the warehouse, make sure that orders get filled and get sent out on time, and to get wherever they're supposed to go. And let's suppose that I am unhappy with my job. I don't like the conditions. I don't think that the wage is high enough. It doesn't allow me to live a standard of life that I desire to live. Uh, I spend too much time at work doing my job. I don't spend enough time with my family and I don't get to go out and do with friends because I'm too busy working because I can't afford to to not work and to have the leisure time to go out and to do things. And let's suppose that the working conditions are just not generally that great. I don't get enough breaks while I'm at work, I'm on my feet all day, and I'm tired, and I'm just generally discontent. Is this a public or a private matter? Now, 
Much of the rhetoric that's to be found today on both the left and the right would suggest that this is a public matter, that this is a matter where because we're talking about multiple individuals in interaction, because we're talking about things that affect the community, that this is something that is a public affair and is deserving of government attention and government intervention. And the general thinking goes that you are owed a certain standard of living, that you have a right to certain amenities. You should be able to, as an American citizen, be able to be paid a decent wage so that you can afford a place to live, so that you can afford to eat. You should have health care. You should um, be able to have time off. You should be able to have vacation time so that you can see your family. Uh, the GOP has recently suggested that we should have paid family leave and that these are all matters that government should legislate because we're not talking about people's private lives. We're talking about things that affect the community. Businesses exist in communities. They, they pay taxes. Um, people who drive to community or people who drive to businesses uh, use the public roads and businesses themselves use the public roads. They use public resources such as electricity, such as water and sewage services, and they employ people in the community. And so when you have a big corporation that moves into a community, be it Walmart, be it Amazon, be it whomever, they are going to change the standard of living. And there's a very uh, collectivist, top-down approach to the way that we view communities, where they are impacted by and become molded to and reflective of the business community that exists there. And people will naturally shape their lives to fit the the jobs available, that the standard of living is a reflection of, of the business fabric that exists. So for instance, if you live in an area where factory farming is prevalent, you're going to live a very different lifestyle than if you exist in a, a place where, um, where steel mining is if steel mining is a thing, if steel processing, if you live in a, a very uh, industrialized plant-based society, that's a very different existence than if you live in a farming community, which is a very different existence than you live in a major city like Boston, which is uh, very modern, but is also very much shaped by its historic roots, by, by its harbor, by... Uh, everything that's come before it and is shaped by the businesses also that exist there because these change what's available to people and this many people seem to think means that these are public concerns and this means that it is acceptable for government to dictate to businesses how they can behave that it is up to them to intervene on behalf of civic rights, right? These things which are a function of public existence. And these civic rights, because they include things like having your street plowed in a winter storm, also include other things that affect your quality of living. Because whether or not you can get out and get to work, whether or not you have electric service in, say, the middle of winter, is something that affects your welfare. And 
in a similar vein, the wage that you're paid, the conditions that you work under also affect your welfare. And so for this reason, many of the things that are considered within the public interests are actually what should properly be private concerns. And so let's take the flip side of, of this. Let's say that I'm no longer a worker in a, in a major corporation like Amazon. Let's say that I'm the owner of a corporation. Let's say that I have built a business up with nothing but my own ingenuity, nothing but my own effort. And I have created this major corporation that now employs a bunch of people. And people are coming to me and saying we're unhappy with the working conditions. Well, I can say, yes, I could raise your, your wages, but that's going to affect my bottom line. And that means that I'm not going to be able to employ as many people. And if that cuts into the profits that we have this quarter, it means the business can't expand. It means I can't hire as many people. And it also would mean that, you know, if we're thinking in the long term, it means that farther down the road, the business won't be as successful. And if the business goes under, then you're not going to have a job. And similarly, there's the question of, if I build a private business, if I my efforts alone have led to the creation of, of something existing, it means that that is my private property. So even if you have a business that employs other people and you're now dealing with juggling the welfare of multiple people, juggling the interests of people, you cannot change the fundamental fact that the business that I have built originated from the thoughts in my mind, originated from my own creative process, my ability to take the abstract stuff of thought, of intellect, and to turn it into a physical product. It is through my effort and my effort alone that this company exists. And nothing can change the fact. And that simple absolute means that it is entirely my business to dispose of my property as I see fit. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not going to manage it badly. If I create working conditions that are just simply untenable, that alienate people, then obviously my business is going to go into decline. So my self-interest is in making sure that my business survives in the long run, not simply just because it provides the means that I need to survive, but presumably because I'm invested in the business I've created, because it is a expression of myself. It is something that has come from within the core of my being and has been made into a tangible thing. So I'm invested in its continued success. But that doesn't change the fact that it is still within my right to negotiate the terms at which others work for my company. It is still a matter of private interest. And again, it's like the example we talked about earlier of you and your neighbor contracting with a private uh, private individual to come and remove the trees from the border of your land. It is up to that uh, landscape architect or whomever you would call to cut the tree down is not indebted to you. The fact that you have a tree that needs to be removed does not entitle you to command that person to come and to perform this work for you. It is up to the individual to determine whether or not the conditions meets 
meet his needs? Does it fit into his work schedule? If it's a small job, then maybe it's something that's put into, onto the back burner, while other bigger jobs that earn him more money take the forefront. Um, it's, it's a factor of another thing. And simply because you have a job that needs doing does not allow you to compel that person to come and to say, I want this tree cut down, I will pay you $50. It is up to the contractor to set the terms of service for his labor. Because again, his labor is an expression of himself and he has a right to order it and dispose of it as he sees fit. And that holds true even in larger business. Let's, as another example, talk about Facebook and the and social media in general and the somewhat controversial practices that Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms have had of banning individuals whom they don't like. And you have people who are calling this a violation of freedom of speech, who are saying that it is censorship, and it is censorship, certainly, but it doesn't change the fact that Facebook and Twitter and all of these other companies are private entities, that they are the product and the creation of private individuals. And yes, certainly they provide a service to many people who, who they allow to use them, but that doesn't change the fact that they're private companies and that they are platforms that exist because private individuals have exerted their effort and have decided to create a platform. And they then and because that platform is something that is of their being, because it wouldn't exist without their effort, they have the right to set the terms of service at which you can use that platform. So to suggest that it is a violation of the First Amendment to ban someone like Alex Jones from Facebook is just flatly incorrect. Because while Alex Jones has a right to speech, he doesn't have a right to speech at someone else's expense. Facebook doesn't have to subsidize him. It's their platform. It's their private property. If they don't like it, then they can tell that person, we don't want you here anymore, we're going to ban you. In the same way that you have the right to tell interlopers on your property to leave the premises because you don't want them here. That same principle applies. It is down to the creation of something. It's not about the users, it's about the production. The fact that major companies like Amazon employ a lot of people does not give the people who work there a say and influence in the company because they're not the ones who built the company. They provide a service for, for the company for which they work, certainly, but they are paid a value for that labor. It is still a basic exchange of services. It is a value for value transaction. And you as the worker have the right to determine whether or not you think what an employer is offering, offering is fair compensation for your time and your effort. And certainly if you don't agree with that, then you can negotiate with that employer and try to make a convincing argument as to why your wages should be improved, as to why you should have paid family leave as to why you should get better benefits and your employer if he thinks that it is in his long-term interest or if he thinks that because of his values that it is worth it to have greater employee satisfaction if he thinks it's deserved whatever reason he determines really because we're talking about his company something that is his private property he can choose to say I agree with your argument I'll provide you with better wages better benefit what have you 
Or equally validly, he can say, no, I don't want to do that. And that should be an end to the matter. But unfortunately, it's not because of this erosion in the public-private distinction. Your employer only owes you fair value and compensation for your labor. He is not responsible for your standard of living. The idea that we should have paid family leave, that this should be something that is mandated by the government, is an improper intrusion of the public into the realm of the private. To, to say that your employer is responsible for paying you for family leave it is essentially to to change the nature of the contract between a, a worker and their employer. The realm of influence does not extend to your home. Your employer wouldn't come into your home and demand that you work there for his benefit because that's your private domain. You get to order it as you see fit, just as your employer gets to order his domain as he sees fit. And to suggest that your employer then owes you uh, paid family leave, owes you some, some compensation so that your standard of living to your liking is, is essentially to enslave you, is to demand that he then work for you without his consent, he has no control in the matter for regulating this, is to demand that he then provide you for your standard of living. And that violates the contract because, again, when you enter into a contract with an employer, when you agree to work for someone, you are affirming that whatever you're being paid in return for your services is amenable to you. You think that it is a fair value for value transaction. And if you don't, you simply walk away. But we're talking there about a specific product. We're talking about the labor towards which you're implying, applying yourself. That's what you are being paid for. And it is a statement of, of nothing more than that. But to attempt to regulate how private businesses behave, to attempt to try and uh, to get them to, to subsidize your private life changes the nature of that contract because it is effectively giving you greater sway over your employer than you have over him. And if government can come in and say to your employer, we're going to tell you how to order your company, we're going to tell you what services you need to provide, and essentially to allow employees to rule the employer without extending that same, employers don't receive anything that looks like compensation. They're not ordering their employees' lives. Again, they're simply providing a a value in exchange for a value, compensation in exchange for labor, in whatever form that comes in, but we are now negating natural rights. We are negating individual sovereignty. And that is something that the public sphere, when it is pr properly regulated, when it is properly run, does not do. Because remember, natural rights don't go away when we're talking about the public sphere. We're simply talking about expanding the scope of what we're able to do. We're talking about creating services that, because you're a contributing member of a community, you get those services in exchange for, for your contribution. It is still a value-for-value value transaction. It's a little bit less of a purely volitional transaction than is a private one because you're compelled to pay taxes. 
whereas you're not compelled to enter into any sort of compact with your neighbor, you are by reason and by many different natural occurrences encouraged to get along with your neighbor because presumably you want your life to be satisfactory, you want it to be calm, you don't want to be constantly at war with the people who live around you, so that is a natural incentive to try to order your affairs in a way that doesn't antagonize your neighbors, to try to get along um, and to try to to behave within the bounds of propriety in your private life, but you are much more free to to do so, to follow your natural inclinations in a in the private realm than you are in the public. But that doesn't mean that the public realm has the right to compel you if it involves a violation of your natural rights. This is one of the basic principles of American government. This is this idea that the individual is sovereign and there is no political action that can be taken that can change that. This is why we have a representative system. This is why we have elected officials who are entrusted with the interests of their constituents. The idea is not that simply because we have, by entering into society, created a new entity, this idea of general will, the idea that when you as an individual interact in your private life, you are doing so in inclination with your own will. But when we're talking about communities, when we're talking about something as simple as a neighborhood or a group of friends, we're talking now about multiple individual wills. And the general will that exists there is simply an expression of individuals in agreeance. It doesn't mean that the members of a community lose their autonomy, lose their ability to express themselves, to have their, their interests respected. It simply means that now we're juggling more people. And that sovereignty is carried through into the public will. Because what moves that public will is the idea that you have 10 people who think that you should pursue policy A, and five people who think that you shouldn't pursue policy A, you should go with policy B. And as a general rule, the majority of the plurality, the people who are in agreement, are going to win. But the way that you get to a majority is by counting up the number of individuals who are involved. If you have a really close plurality, if you have, say, nine people who are in a voting block and five of them think that policy A is is the way to go and four of them think policy B is the way to go and one of them changes your mind, you're flipping the outcome there. Then you have five people who support policy B and four people who support policy A, so you have a different outcome. And it really hinges on to the individual because the nature of a group is you change one of the constituent members and you change the entire constitution of the group. You change the entire makeup, even if it fundamentally looks the same. And, and this is what the general will, what the popular will, what the public will properly understood is. It's not this living entity that has influence over other things. It is an expression over the private wills of individuals that are coalesced together. Because we're talking about things that require common effort, uh, things that 
that cannot be done simply by the individual alone because they're too broad, they're too sweeping in scope, certainly you're going to lose a little of your autonomy. You are not going to prevail 100% of the time as you are when you are left to your own devices in your private world. But that doesn't mean that simply because public policy determines to go a different way than your own predilections, that doesn't mean that it gains the right to negate your private rights. That doesn't mean that your autonomy, your sovereignty can be overrun. That doesn't mean that you lose the ability to mold your property as you see fit. That is still essentially the guide rail of public policy. That is, um, that is something that is out of bounds, something that that government, if it's to be just, is not going to do. So there is this idea then that the, the public will, the public realm is incredibly bounded, whereas the private realm is boundless, is limitless. And of course it is, because it is, is constant, it's ever shifting. It is an expression of the individuals who make it up. And individuals left free to follow their inclinations are going to be constantly doing different things, constantly applying themselves to their different personal projects, are going to have different goals, are going to have different skill sets, different designs, Desires. And, and so the, the private realm is this vibrant, pluralistic, ever-changing thing, whereas the public realm is very much the same thing because it is more mathematically governed. It is much more bounded. It is limited to an expression of what the majority or the plurality want, and that expression is in itself further limited by the fact that it can't, in whatever it does, trample on anyone's private rights. And that is the distinction that is missing from modern politics. This idea that you that the public will cannot override the private will. And and that's what's missing from discussion of of you know regulation of big business and all the things that we've just talked about. This idea that that it's all right uh, for government and particularly for the federal government to set standards that govern how Amazon can treat its employees, that it's all right to demand that employers uh, provide a living wage, that they provide uh, paid family leave to their employees. But this is to violate the private natural rights that the founders of the company hold. And, and that is the real problem with public discourse today is the idea that the public realm is unbounded, the public realm is what should prevail because it is bizarrely an expression of private interest. But private interest can't be expressed in the public realm. The idea that you have multiple individuals interacting with each other, that doesn't mean that that necessarily requires public action. There are all sorts of private disputes that happen all the time in within your household, with your neighbors, but just because you have an agreement, a disagreement with someone, just because you, you, uh, you have some sort of problem in the community, that doesn't mean that automatically the government has a right to get involved. If we're dealing with the disposal of private property, if we're dealing with problems that arise because one individual cannot secure the services of another because 
it is their private property that is at issue and they are not inclined to dispose of it in a certain way, that is still not a matter that is within the bounds of the public will. It is something that is a private issue and there may not be any redress of grievances in the private realm. If an individual who has total control over the property does not want to go along with someone else's idea, then that's simply tough luck for the other individual. And, and that is something that is missing from public debate.